0: to get 50% off that's code selling with love 50 at factormealscom slash selling with love 50 and you'll get 50% off. Not bad.
1: You don't need to get rid of anything in your life. You're not going to love yourself trying to get rid of half of yourself. You're not going to love your loved ones trying to get rid of half of them. You're not going to get empowered living in a moral hypocrisy. You're going to be empowered by honoring all of the parts How else are you gonna be whole? And no matter what you've done or not done, you're still worthy of love. That's the big essence behind the existence. And the willingness to probe and find the other side of the equation, because if those behaviors were somehow not serving the universe, they would have gone extinct.
0: Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Valley podcast. As a listener of Superhumans at Work, thank you so much for tuning in, and I'm excited to announce a interesting innovation that we'll be having moving forward. See now that we record these episodes, we actually have a live audience that gets to tune in and listen over my shoulder and the guest's shoulders while we record these podcast episodes. At the end of our interview, we always get a chance to bring some of these attendees to listen in, ask questions and be a part of the show as well. You'll get to hear some of these questions towards the end of the episodes. So notice that you'll still be getting these amazing conversations about 20 to 30 minutes with me and the guests. And at the end, you'll have some additional content from the questions of our live audience members. Now, if you'd want to be a part of the live audience, know that this is something that is reserved for our All Access members of Mindvalley. So to learn more on how you can become an All Access member, go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman, where you get access to all the learnings from Mindvalley and all of these extra bonuses as well. It's one of the best education systems you could participate in to live a truly extraordinary life. So definitely go check it out at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman. That's S u p e r h u m a n thank you so much for tuning in and let's get started with this episode Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. I have a returning guest today, which is one of the highest rated episodes we've had on Superhumans at Work. This is Dr. John Demartini, who is back again to talk to us about a topic that's slightly different from our last conversation, but something that is so relevant, especially for us who have all went through 2020 together. See, last time we talked about productivity, which was one of the most highly rated episodes, such pragmatic advice on how to get your output to go up even higher. But in 2020, sometimes it wasn't necessarily just about increasing our output. It was also about how to face our own reality. And there were a few hiccups that might've come through. And what we want to talk about is how to push through compassion fatigue, discover a bit more about what that means and how to handle it, as well as mind hacks to dissolve grief. Because we've had a lot of our... Friends, family, possibly colleagues that might have been affected by the coronavirus or other cases. So, let's talk about what are some of the things that we had to go through in 2020 and how do we start 2021 strong. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. John DeMartini, he is a world renowned specialist in human behavior, a researcher, author, and global educator. He is the founder of DeMartini Institute as well as the DeMartini Method. The man speaks on stage around the world and now speaking from home virtually during the times we're in quarantine and his work ethic is so incredible we're going to talk a bit more about that as well but his methods are used by psychologists psychiatrists social workers educators consultants health professionals from around the world and he's here with us today to talk to us more dr john DiMartini, welcome to the show welcome back to the show and Good thank for you for being me back here. It's appreciate it thank you Just before we started recording and bringing people into the call here, you were talking about what have you been up to for 2020? Now, I know you've been speaking on stages around the world. A lot less travel happened since the coronavirus hit. Can you talk to us a bit more about how you've made shifts and what you've been doing to your habits in the process?
1: (laughs) I love researching, writing, teaching, and normally traveling. And so now I get to travel on Zoom or on these various social platforms. I still kept a very busy schedule into 2020. I did 356 presentations online, and I did a, I don't know how many interviews, probably 600, 800, maybe. So I was very busy during the year. It seemed like there's a lot of people that went on to the online world, and a lot of them wanted to have a speaker. (laughs) I, I take advantage of every opportunity I can share, so I love doing that.
0: I love it. Now, I have to ask you the question, what motivates you to do so much of this work and get to show up on these interviews? I mean, I'm so grateful that you're also on this podcast, but what's that motivator for you to get you to go and give so much?
1: You know, I've been doing it 48 years and I I had an inspired vision that occurred to me when I was 17 years old. I had learning difficulties as a child and I met a gentleman named Paul Bragg at age 17, right before my 18th birthday. And in one night one man in one hour with one message got to me i felt like he was talking to me that was the first night in my life that i thought wow maybe if i work at it maybe i could overcome my learning problems and someday become intelligent i was told i would never be able to read or write never be able to communicate never anything, never go very far in life as a child i was a high school dropout i lived on the streets as a kid and here i am now for the first time in my life, hearing a man that believed in me more than I believed in me and saw in me more than I could see in me and somehow catalyzed in a moment of inspiration, an idea that maybe I could, if I worked for it, I could, I could finally be intelligent. And that was a turning point. And to find out you can do something you never thought you could do is an inspiration. And I have been doing it now 48 years. And I don't need outside motivation to do what I love, and that is to research and write and share and do what I can to help people live extraordinary lives. I feel like I was blessed by this man. I'd like to do the same, pass that torch.
0: For those of you who are watching live, we have our Mindvalley All Access members who are live watching this session. If ever you're curious to be a part of that, definitely go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman to learn more about how you can be part of this live conversation. We're already seeing some love from Mary, Jen, Marcella, Violetta, as well as Carrie. And it grounds us to the conversation that we're about to have here, John, which is pushing through this compassion fatigue. Now, I have to be honest, this is the first time I've heard the term compassion fatigue. So I'd love for you maybe to define us a bit more about what that means, because I can make assumptions, but I'd love to be more clear on exactly what does compassion fatigue mean.
1: Well, passion, the word passion comes from pati, passio, which means to suffer, which is interesting. Everybody's talking about find your passion, get your passion, but it means to suffer in its etymology. Compassion means to suffer with somebody, which is an interesting thing. So compassion fatigue is when you have been suffering with somebody, you can eventually get enough of that where you said, I need a break. (laughs) So compassion fatigue is when you have gone out of your way to try to assist another individual who's quote suffering in their perceptions and that you're trying to assist them. And sometimes the results that you're attempting to do to help them are not what you hoped. And you can eventually kind of burn out trying to do that. You know, some people, want to be a play victims of their history instead of masters of their destiny. You want to run their story instead of make history. And so constantly trying to assist them, eventually you get to a point where I'm not getting a feedback that I'm making some sort of contribution and that can burn you out and eventually bore you, which can lead to fatigue. Because if you're not feeling like you're making the difference that you would like to make helping people, you can eventually go, I want to go to somebody I can help. (laughs) So this is a compassion fatigue. With Corona initially, that was a major, significant question: How do we deal with this? Actually, where it first started using that term was in Sydney, Australia, when they had the fires over a year ago. Hmm. About a year ago, they had fires everywhere, and people were, you know, having their houses burned down, and people were needing places to stay, and it was just an overwhelm for a lot of people. And the term compassion fatigue became popular there, and it's kind of spread. and I think that's a, a term, but If you stop and look at what compassion really is, and this is going to shock people. We've all had situations in our life where we've had somebody run a story that they're suffering about something. And there's times when we really feel called to help them. And other times we sit and go, "Ah, I don't have a connection to that. I don't relate to that. I think you probably know what I'm talking about. What happened is I found out when I was researching compassion many years ago, through almost three decades ago that a lot of times the wounds that we have had in our own life, the experiences and events in our life that we have perceived more drawbacks than benefits to, that we have it stored in our subconscious mind, pain. When we see somebody going through what we've gone through, we identify with it and we want to help them because we really want to help ourselves get through what we've still stored inside us and helping them helps us. But if we don't relate to what they're going through, and I can't identify and didn't go through that. That may not trigger us a desire for compassion to help them. That's why we see some people really rescue. I noticed psychologists, I interviewed about 30 psychologists that specialized in incest issues. And they were the ones that had been incested because they could identify it. And others that had violence and because they had had experience of violence and never saw the flip upside of it. They only saw the downside of it. They're trying to kind of rescue You only rescue things on the outside that represent parts on the inside that haven't been balanced and loved. And so, compassion fatigue is the pursuit of trying to help other people work through the things that help you at the same time. Really exploring this was interesting because if you take yourself and neutralize the experience you have, instead of having a compassion and think, oh, they're suffering, you do what uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said. You confront them with reality to help them see the blessings in these crises and help them come back into objective reason and use the experience resourcefully to do something extraordinary with this event. Because the greatest discovery of our generation, as William James said, is we can just change our lives by changing our perceptions and attitudes of mind. We have control over our perceptions, decisions, and our actions. It has nothing to do with what's out there in the world. As Milton says, we can make a heaven out of a hell or a hell out of a heaven. It's the associations that we have in our own experience in our subconscious mind that make a heaven or a hell out of things. And we can change those associations by asking quality questions that make us conscious of the upsides to those challenging events and help people see the blessings, them becoming resourceful and help them catalyze the event as on the way, not in the way and serve them. And we won't be fatigued because we're not now working through our own issues.
0: I see. So if I understand this, because this was profound and I want to make sure I grasp this correctly, compassion fatigue will happen if I haven't taken the time to work through my own issues through the suffering. And I feel like the way of of healing my own issues is by helping others with similar issues. And what I need to do is actually transcend my own issues before I extend a lending hand. Is that, is that how I understand? What happens is many times the people that are wounded and are staying stuck
1: and wanting to run their story are identifying with the next wounded individual, one wounded person kind of rescuing the next wounded person. And if they haven't seen the blessings in their own life, they sit and wallow with them and listen to them. And they just, allow both of them to continue in their stories, eventually discovering the upsides in it. But I find that when I do my the Breakthrough Experience program, the thing that I do in my signature programs, I actually ask them new sets of questions to help them see the other side, the flip side, and have a cognitive repraisal of what's happening, and spin it in a way where they're seeing it like, whoa, I'm grateful. I had a lady that was abandoned, that was the label she had been given. She'd been going to a therapist for 35 years. Her mother left her when she was very young. She's in her forties now. She had run this story, an abandoned child. My mother didn't want me, rejected me and everything else. And I asked her, at the moment you perceived your mother disappearing, what did you think you missed out on? What did you actually think you lost? Because there's nothing lost. It's just transformed. And the master lives in a world of transformation, never the illusions of gain and loss. And I said, so what did you think you missed? Well, I didn't have somebody to do this. I didn't have somebody to nurture. I didn't have somebody to talk to, ask questions to, teach me this. I said, so whatever you thought you missed, who emerged in your life to become a mother figure in your life? And she says, nobody. I said, look again. Hmm. That's the story you've been running 35 years. Look again. She goes, my aunt showed up. My grandmother showed up, my best friend's mother showed up, a teacher at school showed up, and my father took on part of those roles. And his new girlfriend became part of that. I said, what was the benefit of those people doing it instead of if your mom had done it? I never asked that question. She always resented those people instead of looked at it. She goes, oh, well, I, wow. I said, what would have been the drawback if your mother had done it? you're living in a fantasy whenever you compare your current reality to a fantasy about how it should have been or would have been you automatically are not going to appreciate your magnificence of what actually happened so what if your mom had been there what had been the drawback uh i don't know look and then she started bawling she goes wow she got this chill and she goes my mother was bipolar and i just realized something that somebody tried to tell me i now finally make sense out of it my mother was afraid of what was happening in her life to raise me. And she felt I deserved more than what she could offer. And she stopped and she bawled and she goes, for 35 years, I've been angry at my mom. I realized that she loved me enough to make sure that she didn't leave me in a vulnerable situation with a bipolar woman that had no governance. And she gave me to these other people to help me have a better life than what I could ever done. And she bawled and cried 15, 20 minutes nonstop. And she had a cognitive reappraisal and spun the thing in a way where now she goes, my self-worth just skyrocketed. I wanna make sure I do something on behalf of my mom now. Instead of being a victim of her history, she's now master of her destiny. Instead of letting somebody run the story and go, oh, you poor thing, which is false compassion in my opinion, by wounded people in their own lives, buying in and identifying, you know, one wounded person rescuing another wounded person. She finally got an objective realization that her mom was actually doing what she could because deep inside a mother loves a child and deep inside the decisions they make is based on what they believe will give them the greatest advantage or disadvantage they couldn't do it. And they're factoring in themselves, their child, their family, their extended family, they got to factor all those. It's not an easy decision at times. But when she got that, it shifted her life. Her self-image changed. Her looks changed. Her weight came off. Her career path changed. It's not what happens to us. It's what we decide to make out of our perceptions of that. And that's why asking quality questions can lead to a quality life. I love doing that. That's what I love doing for people, to help people take things that they think are in the way and ask them questions to see how it's on the way. Because the truth is there's nothing that's ever going on in your life that's not on the way. (laughs) It's all on the way. Everything is feedback. Your physiology and your symptoms, your psychology and your intuition, your sociology and your friends and enemies and criticizers and praisers, your events that you think are random events are all part of a perfection to guide you to the authentic, most inspired you doing something extraordinary on the planet, making a difference with momentum that eventually can leave a legacy if you are cognizant of that and follow that with incremental activities.
0: I feel like just saying amen to that. Wow. (laughs) Dr. John, first off, I'll say I'm very glad I asked you to share that story because that was such a powerful story. And I know it's touching so many of our tribe members right now, which I wanted to bring this into this context of the year 2020. We're talking about compassion being this shared suffering. And it seems like the whole world went through a shared suffering with the quarantine, with the COVID yet, in the way that you reframe the story, we can see that there's a healing process that lies in there. I wanted to hear what was your perspective on what happened in 2020 in this collective suffering that the whole world went through?
1: Well, right when I was filming a movie out in Tokyo and presenting the breakthrough experience right when COVID was starting and had to go through Hong Kong right before that. Then from there, I ended up flying into LA and 20 cities got canceled. So i had 20 presentation in different cities around the world just get boom 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 boom, boom cancel because there's no place to do venues can't have more than 20 people this kind of thing like... so i went okay and i said i'm going there's never a crisis without a blessing there's never a loss without a gain there's always two sides it's conserved so what are the upsides and i started writing them down until i got kind of a tear of inspiration two days later we started doing our online presentation we've not been off since and i sent out a letter to I don't know how many students, thousands of students around the world and asked them that all the blessings to stop right now. And for everything that you think is devastating and think is down, find the other side. What's the other side? 17,000 upsides were sent to me, 17,000. Now many of them were duplications and similar and expected, but 17,000, I remember doing an interview and I read some of them, which brought tears to people's eyes. They got closer to their families. They end up getting more resourceful. They figured out they don't have to drive. There's less pollution. India had the cleanest air. They could see the mountains in New Delhi and stuff. LA had the cleanest air. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But people started having humorous anecdotes all the time. And they were doing crazy stuff with their kids. And I mean, the list was going on and on and on. And people found out that they can get by on less cost, they can get more resourceful, they can spend more quality time. There is innumerable, as many upsides as downsides if you take the time to look. If you don't ask the question to look, you don't look. You just run the story. And that, to me, running a story and buying into the story and believing their story is not fair because when you're resentful to something, the way life is right now, you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upsides, and you're blind to half of what's there. And when you're infatuated and manic and emotionally exuberant like they do when the stock market's going up on high, you're blind to the downside. You're unconscious of the downside. But full objectivity is knowing how to ask questions and hold yourself accountable, which means a balance sheet, to see both sides. And the Stoics did this, and Aristotle mentioned this in his works on the mean, the golden mean, that to extract meaning out of an existence, just like Viktor Frankl did, and he was in the concentration camps, is to find the other side of what you're perceiving. So if you're seeing only downside, what's the upside? If you're seeing only upside, what's the downside? When you can bring both sides into the balance, you got the mean and you extract out meaning and the purpose of why things are happening. And that's when you're resourceful to come up with creative and genius ideas. Because when we're pursuing challenges that inspire us, we wake up genius. And if we don't fill our day with challenges that inspire us, it fills up with challenges that don't. But think of all the opportunities to serve, new markets to meet, new ways to help people. I don't see the corona as a bad thing or a good thing. I just see it as a factual experience. How can I use this experience to the greatest capacity to serve the greatest number of people and to fulfill my life and my mission? And I found that that has allowed me to do quite a bit this year.
0: I think for everybody listening as well, we're being inspired to look at this differently. Maybe I wanted to dig more on these power questions because you speak about the power of these questions. Now, assuming we're not on the side of being manic, as you speak, where we look at the downsides, what are some key questions that we could look at asking? I know it might be more specific to people's stories and situations, but are there some generic framing of questions that we could ask ourselves to put ourselves into that better scenario and to have that better perspective to draw us to a more true mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let me open this up first by saying that in Neuron Magazine, March 17th, I think 2016, there was a fantastic little article done on discovering anti-memories. And I first came across this work back when I was 23, when I was writing a book on illusional basis for men's health and disease, on how perceptual illusions affect physiology. And I found out that every perception had a contrast. And you had to compare things to see it. In other words, if you infatuate with somebody that's attractive, you're also comparing them to somebody that you think is unattractive at that same moment. There's a pair of opposites. Wilhelm Wundt, Max Wundt, who's a famous psychologist over 100 years ago, called this the law of opposites, the law of contrast. Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher, fifth century or so, he called it the law of opposites, right? pairs of opposites. So what happens is with every single perception, regardless of what and how long it is, where it is, or what it is, in every episodic memory that we store, there's an equal and opposite content in the brain that's firing off. To balance out every excitation in the brain, for every facilitation, there has to be an inhibitory neuron transmission to calm down the electricity or we have noise in the brain and create disorders, psychological disorders in the brain. So they found out that anti-memories come in to recreate the opposite content simultaneously with whatever we're seeing, and that our intuition is trying to reveal it to keep us stable, but we ignore it with subjective bias and confirmation biases and false positives in our perceptions, and then get trapped with the noise in the brain. When we infatuate with something, it occupies space and time in our mind. When we resent something, it occupies space and time in our mind. It's hard to sleep at night when we're highly related or highly depressed or resentful. But when we balance it, we're stable. We go to bed, we rest, we're poised, we're present, we're purposeful, we're patient, we're prioritized, we're really empowered. So any question that equilibrates the mind, liberates the mind from the bondage of that which is subjectively biased that holds us back. And all of our symptoms in our physiology, all of our symptoms in any area of our life are a byproduct of those subjective biases. So whatever the perception is, if I clearly define what that perception is and look for its opposite at that same moment and find its opposite and discover that we have the capacity to synchronize those and find them at the same time, we liberate our social emotion. I do that daily with people. It's mind-boggling to watch the story change. For many years, they had the thing called the dialectic, all the way back to the Greek philosopher Zeno. And the dialectic was to be able to argue for something and argue for its opposite. And it was called antinomies by Immanuel Kant. And it was had different names by different paradoxes, but knowing how to ask the question to make you consciously aware of what you're unconscious of to make you fully conscious is the most liberating path of awareness, reflective awareness, because it's like a mirror reflection. An antemirror in chemistry is balanced in that case. When we're able to see things from that perspective and ask the questions to liberate, we don't buy into the illusion of mania or depression, manic or panic, I call it. We are basically poised and we're now objective and we can now take this and find meaning and resourcefulness. Resourcefulness means going back to the source and the source is full conscious awareness of that that was a pair of opposites, not a one-sided illusion. That's why Milton, when he said, you can make a heaven out of a hell or a hell of any things, because there's a yin-yang, Taoist construct there. Within the yin is the yang, within the yang is the yin. By being aware and asking questions to see it, instead of running stories of your victim thinking and your subjective bias, you empower your life and not trap yourself in the history of, of what you're storing in your subconscious mind. Your subconscious mind stores all the subjective biases and makes you impulsive and instinctual like an animal and you run from your amygdala But the person who's objective and asks questions is able to find meaning in things, that's what distinguishes us from the animals and allows us to go do something extraordinary.
0: Thank you so much for that, Dr. John DiMartini. I want to do a quick recap here for this part. And for those of you who are tuning in live, know that you can use the Q&A function to ask some questions. We might even have you come live towards the end of this so you can ask your own questions. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, know that you can go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman to learn more about how to be an all-access member so you can tune into these live sessions as well. If I understand this correctly, we've heard so far that compassion fatigue comes from trying to help others while you haven't actually dealt with your own issues first. What we can do to actually solve our own issues is change that perception, change that perspective, which is truly what is the thing that we have power over and we can change the reality of our state. Our emotions can actually completely shift when we shift the story we tell ourselves. If we keep ourselves in that victim mentality, then you keep repeating those patterns and you're not actually being able to see the silver lining in any situation. And what you just said right there, the way I understand it is if you ask a question that is actually Trying to argue against what your current beliefs are is where you start finding something that is more objective, something that is more centered, something that is more true to the reality of the situation, as opposed to the very biased way that we tend to look at our own stories, our own situation. And if I took something specific, let's say for COVID 19, it's almost like always asking about the silver lining. You already mentioned that over 17,000 cases of positive outcomes from COVID have been reported by your students. And you're saying that instead of just saying, wow, this is bad, this is bad you can start thinking, if this was good, what would be the good? Ask these questions that would be like, what is the greatness that came out of this effect? Did I understand this correctly so far?
1: Yeah, you pretty well nailed it. You know, we really have the capacity to do something extraordinary in our life. You know, we go around, we get trapped, subordinating to outer authorities that we've never even questioned, are they deserving to be outer authorities? And then what we've done is we've trapped ourselves in the herd instinct, the herd mentality many times, and conformed instead of enormed, normed. And anytime we compare ourselves to other people and put people on pedestals, we'll automatically minimize ourselves in turn, we'll inject some of their values, and then we'll attempt to live in their values, not our own, which is futile. And the second we also are too proud to admit what we see in others and look down on them and resent them, and now we're exaggerating ourselves, we tend to project our values in them and expect them to live in our values, which is futile. And that's the source of our anger. Our anger is trying to live in other people's values, which is futile, or trying to get other people to live in our values, instead of having reflective awareness and putting people in our hearts and learning to communicate what we value in terms of what they value. Wow, what a difference in life it becomes. And that's when you're able to have equanimity within yourself and equity between you and other people, where you have sustainable, fair transactional exchanges, which then allows you to live a prosperous, remunerated life for doing something you love that's inspiring, that makes a difference in people's lives.
0: Dr. John Demartini, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this incredible wisdom. I know for everybody listening, this has been inspiring. And I just have to take a minute that your way with words are impeccable. I mean, I absolutely love the way you communicate. I'm very inspired by the messages you share. They hit as a home run, every single statement that you make. And I very much appreciate that you are here, you are sharing, and you're making sure that the transformation that you get to do with the words you choose is truly profound for everybody listening to this. So thank you once again, everybody. This has been Jason with Dr. John Demartini here on Superhumans at Work. We're going to switch over to a Q&A now so that we get to interact with the live people here. For everybody here, was this good? Was this great? What's your opinion? I'm curious to know. I know for me, this was absolutely amazing. John, this was incredible. Thank you. I see here Josh Bird actually asked a question that I was asking and it's been asked already. He was like, what are good questions to ask? We already talked about this. So I'm going to remove this question. If you have any questions, make sure you use the Q&A function. And-
1: Can I answer that one, Jason? About a good question. I learned a question. I found out that whatever I perceived in other people I had within myself and whatever I resented in others, it was just because it was reminding me of what I was resenting in myself and whatever I was admiring in others is what, because it was reminding me of something I was proud of in myself. And I went through the Oxford dictionary and I went through a giant dictionary. The Oxford dictionary is like the biggest. And I found 4,628 individual human behavioral traits in that dictionary and I circled and underlined them. And then I looked and where and when did I display and demonstrate them to the same degree as the most extreme individual I'd ever met demonstrating them. And I found I had everything. I was nice, mean, kind, cruel, open, closed, honest, dishonest, you know, conniving, generous. I, was, I had moments where I'd played every rollout. And up until around, oh, 28 to 30, I assumed I needed to get rid of half of those things. And then I realized something really profound. You don't need to get rid of anything in your life. You're not going to love yourself trying to get rid of half of yourself. You're not going to love your loved ones trying to get rid of half of them. You're not going to get empowered living in a moral hypocrisy. You're going to be empowered by honoring all of the parts. How else are you going to be whole? And no matter what you've done or not done, you're still worthy of love. That's the big essence behind the existence and the willingness to probe and find the other side of the equation. Because if those behaviors were somehow not serving the universe, they would have gone extinct. Just like neuroplasticity gets rid of parts of the brain. If it's not being used, anything that's not serving human beings eventually fades. So there's a hidden order behind the so-called things that we morally don't understand. There's a purpose behind them. This because of these pairs of opposites, And by going and asking questions, allow us to see the other side of whatever that is. So if I see a behavior, what is it that I see about them? Okay, what specific trait in action do I perceive them demonstrating or displaying that I despise most? And I identify what that trait is. Okay, verbal criticism or something. Then I go to a moment where and when I perceive myself displaying or demonstrating that same behavior or similar behavior to somebody else and where did I do it, and when did I do it, and who did I do it to, and who perceived me doing it, and own the trait. Because the moment you own the trait and have reflective awareness and realize that who are you to judge them, you pluck the moat out of your own eye before you try to do it on them. And it's way more profoundly impactful to neutralize your own misperceptions so you have the art of communicating your appreciation for their contribution.
0: Hmm. And just makes me think, isn't there a passage in the New Testament about Jesus saying that for those who have not Don't judge somebody that don't think that you haven't done those things. <laughs> exactly. And it's so powerful. And this hits home because there's I think the same thing, like me looking at parts of myself and I even look at the things I'm passionate about. Like for me, sales is a big thing. I, I love sales so much and I want to teach people how to sell with love. And I hate douchey, manipulative marketers and salespeople. And then I look at my own past and I've I've done those. I've played a part in that, and I want to deny that. It's almost like I i want to deny it so much that I want to solve the rest of the world, but I've tried to cut off that part of me that's done it before, and there's probably times I still do it, and I'm trying to be more and more conscious about it. So in this case, right, there's negative traits, like I'll quote them negative because they seem in the short term, to like narcissism, you know, selfishness, mostly are those types of qualities, you can acknowledge them in yourself, but should you be trying to minimize them? Are you saying that, you know what, no, I should no, be no, a no. narcissistic? No, you know, no, no, no. <laughs> what, what I found out that every human being has both sides. Mm. When you challenge
1: me, I can become, you know, almost an autocrat, narcissistic AH. <laughs> <laughs> if you support me, I can be a pussycat. You challenge me, I can be a tiger. The mm. moment you're challenged, you're going to tend to be proud, self-righteous, and that's a defense mechanism, and a testosterone and a serotonin rise, and it basically is a normal response when you've been cut down. You try to stand up, and you can also be the other side. You can somebody support you, and you can really humble yourself and minimize yourself and be an altruist. Whenever you infatuate with somebody, you tend to wake up your altruism. Whenever you resent somebody, you tend to wake up your narcissism. And if you're holding on to those perceptions, those personas, not your being you're a gestalt. You're all of that. But your personas are then labeled by people. Oh, that's a narcissist. I'm amazed at how many people are called narcissists when they're going through a divorce. Their spouse is always called a narcissist <laughs> because the spouse is doing something that's challenging them at that moment, even though they were married to him for 20 years and they didn't call him a narcissist for 20 years. But now that they're now at war with each other, now they're called a narcissist. So when our values, our highest values are challenged, we tend to play off that narcissistic role. And you know what? There's a time for it because if we don't value ourselves, no one else will. But if we go too far, we get humbled. If we minimize ourselves too far, we eventually get supported. Nature's constantly trying to create a, a fair exchange, a transaction of fair exchange. Narcissism tries to get something for nothing, eventually gets humbled. Altruism tries to give something for nothing, eventually gets angered, and eventually teaches you how to be authentic and do fair exchanges. So those are just learning processes. And frankly, I've had hundreds of moments in my life where I could be easily labeled a narcissist. If you film me for a month at a time, you can pull out narcissistic moments and you can pull out altruistic moments. I'm all the above. And I don't need to get rid of any part of it. Those are all of our learning experiences. When you're in elementary school, you go to science class. You look up at the top of the room and you see a little atom called hydrogen and then helium and then beryllium, right? Lithium and then beryllium and boron and you go up the chart up to uranium, you get these smaller to larger balls. And then you see these little stick pictures and balls and you think, well, atoms are little balls. Then you go to high school and you find out, hmm, they're actually little Bohr atoms, a proton, neutron, electron, little solar system looking things. Then you go to college and you find out, wait a minute, they're quantum numbers. They're probability distributions of complex mathematical equations by Schrodinger. And then you go into advanced and get your PhD and you realize, we don't know. There's problems with this model. It's got infinitudes and one over infinity spaces for electrons. That doesn't make sense. They're mathematical abstractions. And so we have to be taught the illusion until we're ready for truth. All of our behaviors are part of our illusions on our journey for truth about our own authentic, magnificent, inspired selves. So none of it's anything but part of our learning process. All on the way.
0: That was absolutely amazing. And that hit home. Thank you. And I do want to acknowledge Kathleen here who pulled a quote from the Bible, which is, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Thank you, yes. Kathleen. So,
1: I would have not all over my head probably for all the stones thrown at me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I want to give a chance to somebody to actually come and ask a question to you. And so I see here, I'm looking at the Q&A. If you can click on Q&A and vote up the questions you would like to see answered. And I think the first one we're going to bring up is Carrie Fisher. Carrie, I think you were on the last call too. So it's good to see you again. I'm going to grab you right now. We'll promote you to a panelist. You will get a chance to ask your question. And so make sure your microphone is ready and your camera can be turned on. And this is about your question about the wound that keeps coming up again. I'll let you ask the question in the way you prefer. Carrie, you can unmute your mic and ask your question.
2: How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice meeting you. You know what? I've had this come up so many times in my life. It's a wound from my childhood, from my dad. I've been on a spiritual path my whole life. I resolved it. I resolved it. I resolved it. It keeps coming up though. And then I, I feel like it came up a little bit with my children too. So I found the gifts. I know the gifts, but why does it keep coming up?
1: What is this thing that keeps coming up?
2: Well, my dad left and he started a new family. He was a great dad there. He wasn't a great dad to us, but as it turned out, he wasn't a great dad to them either. I just always
1: thought that. What specifically are you labeling something not magnificent? What did he do that you or didn't do that you are judging?
2: Oh, no interest in us and me and my
1: two. Go to the moment where you first discovered that he's no longer focused on you and he's now focused. And by the way, sometimes we confuse as children when we're not focused on our wife, We're sometimes the children think it's about them. It's not sometimes just about the wife, not the kids. But if he did not focus on you and he focused elsewhere, go to the moment you first discovered that just in your mind. Just think about it. Okay. Okay. Who started focusing on you instead? Who became a male figure in your life that played that role? It could be male or female playing out the male role, but who started focusing on you at the time? Nobody. (laughs) No, 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 no. I get that every week, every day I get that. Be accountable to the question. Who emerged in your life from that moment on that played the role of a father figure to you? Was your mother? (laughs) mother. Did your mom play part of it? Did she play both roles? A mother and father kind of combination? She kind of worked more, did things differently?
2: Totally. And then my stepfather became like my dad.
1: Okay, good. So your mother and your stepdad later came in and played part of the father's role. What was the benefit of them playing that role? What opportunities that you got as of them doing it instead of your real father, logical father? How would that benefit you?
2: Well, this sounds terrible, but they were smarter than my dad.
1: (laughs) Great. And what's the drawback if your dad had stayed there and been with you the whole time? What been the drawback to your life?
2: I guess I would be like dumb as a bag of rocks. I don't know.
1: (laughs) Did you catalyze a yearning to want to learn and go on your spiritual path starting then?
2: That's the reason I went on my spiritual path at a young so age. So if yes. you had
1: not had that experience and you had not had that void for the spiritual path, if I could now bring your father back and you had what the fantasy was, your father there, but you got to have give up that spiritual path. I would never do it. Okay. So did you ever thank him for actually giving you your spiritual path?
2: I never thought about it.
1: Did you ever thank him for realizing that you obviously had another possible pathway? And by the way, whenever we compare our current reality to a fantasy about how it should have been, yeah, we're always going to be depressed about how it is because we're always comparing it to something we thought was better. But what would now imagine what another drawback if all of a sudden your father had stayed there and not left for another woman, but stayed there in that family, what would be another drawback you'd be facing today? I wouldn't have had my brother's. Say that again.
2: I wouldn't have had my brothers because he remarried and then I love my brothers, like, you know, and I wouldn't have had my two younger sisters either.
1: So if all of a sudden he'd stay there, you have no guarantee those would have been there. They wouldn't have been there. And you now had a, an opportunity to have an amazing stepfather and your mom yeah. got to step up. And did that empower her? Did she stand in a higher empowerment position as a result of that having to take on all those different roles? Well, <laughs> that's a whole different story. <laughs> yes, though. <laughs> Okay, so sometimes we have this idea that it should have been this way, but we never stopped and asked, well, if it was, what would be the downsides of that? And look carefully at what those downsides would have been. And then look carefully at what are the blessings that came about. Besides those new people coming in, what else did you think you missed because your father wasn't there? What other behavior that you expected him to do that you thought you missed out on?
2: I always felt I missed having a whole intact
1: family. If you had a whole intact family with him there, what would have been the downsides you'd face?
2: Well, I wouldn't be so open-minded because I grew up very unusually with the two different families. People weren't divorced as much back then. I was much more open-minded, I think.
1: So what would have been an actual drawback if he'd stayed there and you kept that family figure?
2: I think I would have been closed-minded.
1: Okay. So if you had your spiritual path and you had your open-mindedness and you had now the opportunity to have your brothers and sisters, or you could go back and go be closed-minded and not have a spiritual path and have that, which one I bet you would take is the one you got, didn't it?
2: I would never, ever change my decision now that you said that.
1: But have you ever stopped and asked him, thanked him for the role he played in your journey?
2: All right. Now you're getting a little crazy.
1: <laughs> well, I the, will. <laughs> the thing is, have you ever asked yourself, where have you now done that? Where have you left somebody and they felt the same way about you as you felt about him leaving? Because I guarantee you what we judge in other people is a reflection of parts of ourselves. Where have you left somebody and didn't go back and let them feel like they were left behind or rejected.
2: I'm going to think about that.
1: No, I'm I'm waiting. I don't mind waiting. (laughs) Oh, I'm
2: scared I'm going to get a bill in the mail.
1: (laughs) Well, the the thing is, is if we stop, see, it's easy to point our fingers at other people. Yeah. But as Epictetus, the Greek philosopher said, first, we blame others in our journey of personal development. Then we blame ourselves. But eventually we realize there's nothing to blame. There's a higher order to what's happening on our journey. And when we finally get to that point, we're grateful for ourselves, grateful for our moms, grateful for our biological dads, our step-dads, and anything we can't say thank you for is baggage. Anything we can say thank you for is fuel.
2: That's beautiful. Thank you so much. You give me a lot to think about. Thank you. Uh,
1: Go Deegan, find out where you perceive yourself doing what he's done, and it will liberate you because then you can realize we're all just human beings. Just human beings learning our journey.
2: I love that. Thank you so much. You you. have a great way with the words, by the way. You really do.
0: Well, thank you. Carrie. thank you for the question. John, thank you so much for sharing. That was a very powerful answer that I know has had a profound impact for Carrie and for everybody else listening as well. We have one more question we'll get a chance to answer here with Gaurav. Gaurav, you will see yourself being promoted to panelists. Come on in. You asked a very powerful question as well. That's been the most upvoted in the session.
3: Hi, yeah. So this is, very early morning for me, it's 8.30 a.m. time, winter morning in Mumbai. Uh, 23 degrees in Mumbai is a winter. I am oh. so glad that I joined this call because it's been very fascinating to hear both of you. My question was, and it's coming from a personal experience, the question I had was that while it often happens that from your best point or your high point in life, we slide into grief. You often stay in that state for a long time. And then when you come out of it, you realize that you've probably wasted a lot of unproductive time doing nothing. And I always believe that you come out of it ultimately. But what I wanted to understand is, is there a way or a practice or a hack that one can do to avoid spending a lot of time in that low state and asking or adopting a practice which will help one get out of this situation faster or realize that you're getting into that situation? Because my personal experience was that when I went into that state, I took a lot of time to get out of it. I ultimately did. One of the things which I did was to join Mind Valley as a part of it. And I feel that I'm out of it. But that's my question. How can one do a checkpoint, a general checkpoint? Okay.
1: I'm actually writing a new book on grief right this minute. I've been working on it today. I'll address this. So, do you have something to write with and write on to take notes? Yeah. I have been working with perceptions of loss and grief since 1984, clinically. And one thing I'm certain about, If there's only two sources of grief, two sources of perceptions of loss with bereavement and grief. So write this down. Grief originates from the perception of loss of that which you seek. It's an amygdala response, a nucleus accumbens response in the amygdala of a seeking of that which we seek, an impulse for seeking what we want is shows up biologically as prey, like animals looking for prey to eat. And the second source is the perception of gain of that, which you're trying to avoid. That's the predator coming to eat you. So there's only two forms of grief, just like there's two forms of stress, the perception of loss of that, which you seek loss of food, and the perception of gain of that, which you're trying to avoid something eating you. Now, in the brain, no matter what you're perceiving that you're seeking, that you've lost or gaining what you're trying to avoid the brain registers it exactly the same chemistry wise. So if you, for instance, are looking for a girlfriend and you've got a girlfriend and then she leaves you, you can have grief. If you are looking for money, all of a sudden you lose money in a stock market, you can have grief. If all of a sudden you lose a business opportunity, you can have grief any perception of loss of that which you seek that you admire that you infatuate with that you're desiring to obtain can cause grief because grief is a withdrawal symptoms from the addiction to things we're attached to the more attached the more oxytocin the more vasopressin in the brain the more the grief response when it's all of a sudden taken away or we have grief about all of a sudden a bills coming in that we don't want or people that we don't want to be with them coming and visiting us or all of a sudden clients we don't want to deal with coming in and all of a sudden have to do business with them. That's grief. So grief comes from the perception of loss of that, what you seek and the perception of gain of that, what you're trying to avoid. And those are neurochemically identifiable, but because we're infatuated with something, we're going to fear its loss. So if you have a girlfriend that you're highly enamored with and infatuated with and got her on a pedestal, you're going to be anxious about losing her and you're going to be grieving and devastated if you lose her. But if you've dated her for a year and you start to get bored with her and you're frustrated with her, and you're starting to resent her and you don't like her anymore. And all of a sudden she leaves, you celebrate, you celebrate. Cause you're oh, Finally, I'm freed. I can go on about my business because I'm not infatuated with her anymore. So, Anytime we infatuate with something or resent something, we increase the probability of distress and grief because highly polarized perceptions need those responses to try to get us back into balance. It's a response to guide us back to an objective state. So if you're grieving somebody, lost loved one, a friend, somebody died, a dog died or something, You immediately go find out what are the traits or behaviors that you're infatuated with, that you admired about them, identify them, and make a list of them. Make a list of everything that you admired about them. Then go find out who is now replacing that behavior. Just like the father that left, who became the father figure? The mother became, the stepfather became, possibly teachers. Who took on that role? Find the new form. The master lives in a world of transformation, not the illusions of gain and loss. There's nothing ever lost. It's just changed in form. That's an eternal transformation has been stated for centuries. Then go find out the drawbacks and downsides of the thing you infatuate with. Because if you can't sound the drawbacks of it, you're going to be lost. You're going to feel like, oh, my God, I lost what I'm addicted to because you're going to be addicted to it. Find the downsides of when it was there. What were the downsides of it? and find out what were the downsides to break the infatuation. And then go find out the benefits of the new people that are coming into your life to provide this behavior. If you find the benefits of the new form, the drawbacks of the old form, and find out what is the new form, I guarantee you, you can dissolve grief. I've been doing it since 1984 successfully on thousands of people. It's simply a process that changes the neurochemistry in the brain and releases people from the illusion because you never grieve when Soleimani was killed by Trump in Iran. The people of Iran, who had him as a hero, a general hero, mourned. Five million people mourned. But people in America that had him as a, a terrorist were celebrating his death. The same thing for Saddam Hussein. The people that saw him as a hero mourned his death. The people that saw him as a villain celebrate his death. It has nothing to do with the event. It has everything to do with how you were perceiving them prior to that event or perceiving that object or individual or whatever you're attached to. It's the attachment. The Buddha says, as long as we have an attachment, the world on the outside runs our life. Transcend the attachments by being objective and neutralizing our perceptions, liberates us from the external world and allows us to be called from the heart.
3: Thank you so much, John, that was so powerful.
1: I have a book out called The Heart of Love. If you can find that book, there's a chapter on exactly what steps to do that I just mentioned. And when my new book comes out, then hopefully you can get that. But that probably won't be out to the end of this year. So It's going to be my next read, actually. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Dr. Thank you so much.
0: Gaurav, thank you so much for the question. John, of course, thank you for the incredible answer. And I will wrap this up now, given that we are doing superhumans at work, we should know that meeting should finish five minutes early so you can jump to your next one. I know you were in a meeting just before we did this, and you're probably going to be busy again. So John, thank you so much for coming. I mean, for everybody here, I can see the comments coming in. People are mind blown. You've caused wow moments, you've caused tears, you've caused transformation, which seems to be the big word that I hear you mentioned so many times being key to the work that you do. So thank you for all of the things you do for everyone in the, here in the chat. I've seen a few people mention quest working more with Dr. John Martini. go into your connections app and post how incredible this session was. And we'll make sure we'll bring it up to the mind Valley team so that we can continue to reach out to you, John. Yes. I absolutely love your work. I am a big advocate for it. And I think there should be some more collaborations as well. Thank you so much. Thank all of you. Before you go to bed tonight, if you're going to sleep, whatever it is,
1: just know that no matter what you've done or not done, you're worthy of love. And the magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you might try to compare yourself to or impose onto yourself. So give yourself permission to shine, not shrink, and to be yourself, not somebody else. Don't be second at somebody else. Be absolutely number one in being you. I love you all. Thank you. Jason, thank you for the opportunity to be on your show again.
0: Love you as well, John. Thank you so much for coming back. And for everybody here, thanks for tuning in and enjoy the rest of your evening. I will kick off my day here in Bali. (laughs) Thank you so much. Bye, everybody.